Well, this is David Gibson. I'm at the Ecological Society meetings in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm joined here by uh, Nicole Rafferty, um, who's an associate editor for the journal. And Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So we're just going to chat about a few things. Um, so let's start off, Nicole, tell us something about your ecological background. Well, I had a somewhat circuitous route um, to where I am now. I, um, I've been interested in, in biology for a long time, but I was really initially drawn to evolutionary biology. And then um, in graduate school, I started reading uh, literature on mutualisms and got really fascinated by um, the ecology of mutualistic interactions. And so I sort of changed directions a few times um, in terms of what my graduate studies focused on and then settled down in uh, Tony Ives' lab at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And that was where I really started to focus on plant-pollinator interactions, mm -hmm. which yeah. I fell in love with in um, tall grass prairie ecosystems in, uh, in Wisconsin. And um, from there, I pretty much stayed on that, that track. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to be in a lot of um, really great labs. Um, worked with Judy Bronstein at the University of Arizona, where I, again, studied uh, plant-pollinator mutualisms and um, yeah, that brings us pretty much to the present day where I'm an assistant professor at uh, UC Riverside. Yes, yeah, so the, pe the people we work with make such a difference, certainly, to us in, in uh, development and, and all that sort of thing, yeah. So you describe yourself on your website as a population and community ecologist, so that's two slightly different things, but mm -hmm. what does that mean in your case? Well, I guess I think of it in that I'm really interested in um, plant populations and sort of what factors, how interactions with other species, especially um, mutualist pollinators, affect their, their demography, um, the fitness of, of plants. And so I try to um, especially understand how phenological traits, um, uh, flowering phenology affects plants um, at the population level and how that is mediated by their interactions with especially insect pollinators, especially bumblebees. Um, so the community ecology aspect um, has been present in my work because I, I tend to focus not on um, individual species, but multiple species in a community, um, but still looking at how um, the consequences of those interactions shape population level right. dynamics. Yeah. So that actually relates to one of the other questions I wanted to ask you about. You had a paper in Journal of Ecology, yes, um, which was titled "A Global Test for Phylogenetic Signal in Shifts in Flowering Time Under Climate Change." Tell us something about that paper. Well, this was a paper that came about um, in my because of my interest in in how climate change is affecting flowering phenology. So we've known for a number of years now that many plant species are showing shifts in the timing of flowering and this has implications for their interactions um, with other species in the community and so there have been a number of studies that have looked for phylogenetic signal in uh, phenological traits themselves so we know that timing of flowering is phylogenetically conserved um, but very few studies had looked at whether there was signal in shifts in flowering time. So 
um, weather species responses to climate change. Phylogenetic shift. Phylogenetic, yeah, or okay. shifts in terms of um, when a given species, its responsiveness to climate change mm -hmm. in terms of its ability to right. shift its flowering time and respond. Um, and so treating that shift itself as the trait that you're looking for signal in, um, no studies had really focused on that, especially in a, a larger geographical context. So looking at multiple communities um, for, and so we compiled data sets from across the Northern Hemisphere. Um, a lot of phenological data sets are, are, uh, that we have access to are are biased towards the northern mm -hmm. uh, hemisphere at this point. Yes. Um, and so we really were interested in whether the, the ability of species to respond to climate change in terms of when they're flowering showed that sort of phylogenetic signal. Mm -hmm. um, and we found that, it, yes, there is phylogenetic signal in, in species' ability to sort of to track climate change phenologically. Um, and that it, it sort of conformed more to uh, a model of trade evolution for which there is an optimal value, um, so stabilizing selection or being constrained and not just um, increasing variance over time. So there, there's some clades or groups of species that are more likely to shift than others, is that what that means? Yes, exactly, yes. So there does seem to be this yeah, signal in that closely related species of plants tend to show similar abilities to be able to respond mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of changing their phenology, their flowering phenology, with changes in climate. Right. Interesting. So, have you taken that work any further, or is it? It was sort of a, a, a side project in a way. Um, my PhD advisor, Tony Ives, is one of the people who um, originally developed some of the metrics um, mm -hmm. for testing for phylogenetic signal. Um, Bloomberg's K in particular, and so I got sort of interested in that topic from being in his lab, and then, uh, but I haven't done a whole lot of work on that topic since. Um, I am generally interested in in understanding phylogenetic patterns, and because I like to look at multiple species within communities to um, certainly take that into consideration in designing studies and analyzing data, it's it's obviously really important to account for that potential non-independence of Perhaps in the future, then, yeah. Yeah. So let's change gear a little bit here now. So I think we can still call you an early career researcher. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what are the, some of the, the issues and, and challenges of, of being an early career researcher and how do you deal with those? Yeah, I, I definitely still consider myself an early career researcher. Um, I think that's something that I'm still getting used to being um, a faculty member mm -hmm. and attending faculty meetings is still a little bit um, surreal for me sometimes. So you can use them yeah. and dread them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as long as I can get away with considering myself early career, I think I will just because it's hard to fathom anything else. Um, but no, I think that uh, for me, I recently became a mom, and so that has changed things quite a bit. Um, my daughter is almost a year and a half old now, and I knew that, um, yeah, that it would be challenging to uh, be pre-tenure especially, and uh, trying to build my research lab and be a parent. Um, but I have to say, it's been a little more challenging than I expected. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still working on that, um, but uh, yeah, otherwise I think it's just, 
uh, teaching. I find teaching takes a lot of time and energy. Um, and so figuring out how to keep research momentum going while teaching courses, especially for the first time, has been, has been a big challenge. Um, I think I'm getting a little bit better now that, you know, courses, some of them I'm teaching for the second or third time. Um, but yeah, in general, I think it's just, it's sort of the, the cliche of find, figuring out how to manage your time talking to other people who have more experience and um, can give you strategies is useful, but yeah, when it comes down to it, it's, it's difficult. It's a challenge. And yeah. maintaining a, a sort of healthy work-life balance is important too, isn't it? It is. As, yeah. As a parent, you're sort of forced into that in a way, aren't you? That's true. That is a, um, something that I hadn't um, expected as much that it would force me to spend less time, for example, in the evenings, mm -hmm. uh, checking email and working, um, and to become, you know, I did, I'd heard from other people who, um, who have kids who are academics that you have to become more efficient at work, and I'm still <laughs> hoping to, yeah, to implement that, but I, I have been forced to do less work at home, which has made me more, yeah, present and, um, Trying to keep my daughter entertained, it, it requires right. a lot of uh, a lot of focus. So, yeah. 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 Well, last thing uh, we'll mention or talk about is that you're an associate editor for the Journal of Ecology. We've been doing that for a few years now. So, how's that going? It's been great. Yeah, I really uh, I started out um, actually I was still finishing up a postdoc when I was invited to join the board, and so I felt like it was a huge honor and um, I still really value having that role and uh, getting to see manuscripts um, you know from the stage when they're submitted to then when they're they're accepted for publication is very rewarding um, to be part of that process um, I've learned a lot from the the papers that I've been able to handle learned a lot about just the process of you know what a little bit behind the scenes of what goes on with a, a journal like Journal of Ecology and um, the British Ecological Society. So, yeah, it's been a, a hugely valuable experience. Well, we're very grateful for your efforts and your work. <laughs> Thank you. Anything else you want to say at this point? Um, I don't think so. I guess uh, I'm I'm the incoming chair for the plant population ecology okay. section give that for, a plug. for ESA. Yeah, give that a plug and just say that. Um, we have a, a small mentoring network, but we're always looking for additional people. So if there are others who are interested, um, you can also check out. We have a, a website presence for that. Um, but yeah, just... There you go. Anyone listening to this and wants to get involved? Yeah, that would be very, very touch, welcome. right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, David. <laughs> Thanks.